This is John Williams reaching out to our old friend Thomas Jefferson. President Jefferson, are you there? Good day to you, citizen. Hey, I got interesting news for you, sir. What is that? Sounds like the setup of a joke. We didn't rehearse this. <laughs> Candidate walks into a bar. Um, I, I want to talk to you about the Republican debate, which took place just recently. But I also wanted to mention to you that uh, on the Democratic side for the president's the, the race for the president, um, Hillary Clinton is the front runner and has been for a long time. But a man who describes himself as a socialist, uh, an independent or democratic socialist, is giving her a run for her money. I, I wonder what you would think of that and what the founding fathers would think of that. Well, we'd be more uh, incredulous that a woman is considered a serious candidate for the presidency yeah. than that a socialist is. You know, as you're well aware, I'm a male chauvinist, and in the 18th century, in which I lived, most of us were. Wait a minute, but in your but in your era, you were not regarded as such. You were that oh, was the norm. I, I, I was. I suppose I was a little more. Uh, chauvinist than others because I was from Virginia where we had a particular social milieu, you know, that women were fragile and they were um, delicate and that their primary business in the world was reproduction and and the life in the nursery. Mm -hmm. And we liked our woman somewhat deferential and 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 always um, shy and retiring that's not so true in New England New England had a different view and if you think of Abigail Adams for example who was fiery and wrote strong letters and was extremely opinionated and didn't hold back she was more typical of New England and probably she could not have been Abigail Adams had she been born in Virginia right. her character would have been very much more more of that Southern Bell sort. But as you say, my views were essentially typical of my era with respect to women's inheritances and women in public office and so on. But but back to your question, uh, socialism. Socialism did not exist as a an ideology in my time, but there were the beginnings of socialist thinking. You can find them back in Plato and uh, in the, the the world of uh, of ancient Greece, and you saw a little of it in Sir Thomas More's Utopia during the age of Henry VIII and so on. And I myself had certain views which could be regarded as proto-socialist, but socialist as you understand it, believing in state control of the means of production and so on, that kind of language would have made no sense whatsoever to anyone living in my time. I, As you know, I believe that every human being, you and I and everyone else, should be self-reliant, that you should take care of your own um, individual life and your family life with little or no reference to government at any level, that everyone should be a libertarian. Yeah. Uh, who self-actualizes and needs almost nothing from the state at any level. So socialism, as as I I think I understand it from your era, would not particularly please me. Now, you'd probably be voting for Rand Paul. Yes. Than than Hillary or or Bernie or, for that matter, Donald or Marco or any of the other Republicans. I have to tell you, I still have in my mind, though, the image of the founding fathers, all all of them lined up the way seven of them were the other night at podiums in some sort of debate, pounding their chests, 
debating the citizenship of each other, stuff like that. I, 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 that would have been fantastic to see. Fantastic. It would have been. You know, you can imagine that George Washington would be the tallest person in the room and that he would he'd be stiff and formal and formidable and he, he, people would hardly dare to ask him questions, but when they did, he would answer in two or three uh, blunt and straightforward responses. But there'd be no rhetoric, there'd be no digressions, there'd be there'd be no argumentation. And then you'd have little John Adams who was chubby and fleshy and irascible and he would be sputtering and trying to raise his hand to get in on the conversation and quarreling with absolutely everybody and uh, and, and pessimistic right down to the core. And then you'd have Hamilton, you know, perfectly groomed um, instead of really paying attention to the questions he'd be winking at ladies in the audience and trying to set up assignations for later but but when when he finally sort of focused he would give a a brilliant piece of federalist policy that was arrogant and and disdainful and 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 would look down upon the the mere citizens who had gathered in this way and then and then Patrick Henry would get all wound up for a 35 minute speech of some sort and the, the the moderators would try to stop him but he would be so eloquent and magnificent that people would be weeping and, and, and <laughs> hanging on his every word. And I'd be shyly in the corner taking a few notes and jotting down weather and uh, maybe making notes of things that I wanted to accomplish in the next few weeks at Monticello. But when, when I were called upon, if Patrick Henry ever stopped talking, I would probably say, well, I, you know, I really think that George Washington said it best and I really don't regard myself as having much to say. And so you, I think it would be a fascinating thing to recreate yeah. on a stage like that, the founding fathers having a debate. The uh, maybe most interesting thing to you about the format would be that 90 seconds in, the bell would ding and it would be time for you to talk. And if somebody referenced you and you felt the need to rebut, you would have 60 seconds to rebut. So we're, we're, we've distilled these complex issues down to very, very uh, measurable packages. Well, I probably would never have used up my full allotment of time. You know, I, I said never use two words where one will serve. And I was so shy, I mean, just almost painfully shy all of my life, that I probably would come in under the 60-second limit every time. And in terms of rebuttal, I, I doubt that I would ever rebut. I think I would say... If uh, Alexander Hamilton has said that, I leave it to the people to decide whether he speaks the truth or, or whether they regard that as a as a personal attack. I, I would have been an annoying debater. <laughs> uh, I wonder which of these three issues um, you would comment on, issues that uh, sure do attract attention at the Republican debate. One is guns. One is refugees. I would say in general, the other one is the failure of the current administration, and that's a lot of things. But health care and the economy are central to those. Um, I wonder which are the best things for us to judge a candidate on. I wouldn't think that the Second Amendment is uh, worthy of much wrangling. I believe that a free man is a man with a gun. But no matter what I believe, the the Constitution is clear about this. 
the Second Amendment says that, um, that citizens have the right to keep and bear arms until we're ready to have another constitutional convention or, or create an amendment to clarify or restrain gun ownership. Uh, it seems to me that that is settled law. Well, excuse me, excuse, excuse me, but I, I know you didn't write that, but I don't think it is clear at all in order to maintain a well-regulated militia. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, a militia, of course, is a people's army. You and I, if we belong to the same community, would come out on a Saturday afternoon and bring our own muskets, and we would drill for a couple of hours. Okay, so that then if- what does that say about personal ownership of, of guns if I already have a well-regulated militia or if we've given that to the state or the federal government? I mean, did, was it your intention or interpretation that – we have as many guns and bullets of multiple, all kinds of sizes as we want? No, I, I'm a man of peace. I never fired a, a weapon in anger in my life. I, I would have hoped that the American people would be the most harmonious and peaceful and retiring people on earth and that guns would be used for hunting uh, or varmints, but we would have a militia and people therefore would have guns to to bring into the public square for the militia, but I didn't expect that we would be as violent to people as you have turned out to be and that we would use guns for robbing stores or committing domestic violence or uh, gang warfare or or all of those things. That's completely at odds with my own uh, dream of America as, as the most harmonious society that ever existed in the world. So I'd be perplexed by all that, but I can tell you categorically that the Second Amendment was designed to avoid a permanent military establishment. In other words, we may have been naive, but we did not want what you have, uh, an army, a navy, and of course you have Coast Guard and Air Force and so on. We did not want those to be permanent, rooted institutions in America. We wanted there to be a kind of amateur nature to this, that the citizens themselves, the Minutemen, would come out to defend their families and their property in the case of attack, but there would be no standing army and no standing navy. So we were clearly uh, in error about the the course of human history, but that's the nature of that amendment, that if if you don't want a permanent professional army, you'd better let John Williams have a rifle so that he can participate in the militia. Well, clearly you were writing the Constitution for your era, not for ours. We didn't understand this, but that's the point. That's the point. I think you've, you've, you've absolutely touched upon it, that the Constitution was written by a certain type of individual, 55 men, all white, all uh, upper middle class or higher, who lived at a certain time with certain social conditions and certain technologies. That era is gone. All of the social conditions that existed in my time have disappeared in yours. We lived in a three-mile-per-hour world. You don't. We lived in a world where every weapon could be fired one time and one time only. That's not true in your time. We lived in an era of, of horses and carriages. We didn't even have steamboats. And so to think that in your era, with all of the breathtaking revolutions which have occurred between my time and yours, that you can still govern yourself with a constitution that was written by men who are essentially medievalists 
is ludicrous, and that's what gets you into so much trouble. If you're if you're right, John, that in your time, the conditions of America, its geopolitical conditions, or its internal social conditions, or its technologies of weaponry, are that different from what we had in mind when Mr. Madison wrote the Constitution, then why do you still cling to that document, which obviously can't adjust your public relations because it couldn't anticipate who you are and what you own and how you operate. Yeah, that's um, because it's a sacred document, because it's either too cumbersome to change it or because people see it as divine. It's But it's while sacrilege. we have this conversation about guns... We are not talking about art galleries or education or ballet or the art of conversation or civility or gardening or agriculture or library science. We're talking about mayhem and the fact that so much of your discourse, particularly in that party of the two parties, is about guns and mayhem and public order. Yeah. It's very depressing to me. I thought we would be talking about how many libraries you can have in a, in a digital age or something, or how much wine is produced in Minnesota or Illinois. Yeah, we're not. And I'm going to leave you on this notion. I, and incidentally, just one last point about this, though, and that is because you may have detected my bias in this conversation. But if we did have another constitutional convention, if we did revisit the Second Amendment, we might conclude that it should be the way it's become, that even if that wasn't the intent of the founding fathers, it's the desire of the people now. And I think I, while I wouldn't agree with that, at least I would be more agreeable to that than us pigeonholing the current laws we have into the Constitution, which did not anticipate the 22nd or 21st century. So that's what's troubling to me. My friend, you have become a Jeffersonian. <laughs> well, the last I, I spoke to you some time ago, and there we were frothing away at politics and social events. And I said, you know, we need a joke. And I said, why don't you close with a joke for us? And you said you would. And I haven't spoken with you since then. Do you remember the joke you were going to tell us? Yes, and I'll tell you why I remember it. It's my only joke. Okay. You know, so the average politician in your time has hundreds of jokes, but I was not a very humorous sort of man. I was a good-humored man in that I smiled and was benevolent and so on, but I wasn't someone who would slap somebody on the back and tell a joke in a tavern. In fact, I never frequented taverns. So because of that, if you comb all of my 80-some volumes of writings, Ryan? you will find only one joke. It so better be a good it. one. It's a lawyer joke. Whether it's a good one, I leave to you to determine. But I got a letter from a young man who was a congressman. And he said, Mr. Jefferson, there are 155 members of, of Congress of the United States, and so little seems to get done here in Congress. Why, sir? To which I replied, young man, whenever you gather 150 lawyers into one room at one time, nothing good can come of it. After all... These are men who are paid to talk by the hour. That's the end of the joke? You're supposed to be rolling on the floor laughing. They get paid by the hour. See, because they talk in Congress by the hour, not because they have anything to say, right. but because as professional lawyers, their, their fee structure is by hourly increments do you see right. yeah yeah well you see how funny that is 
<laughs> because I think I do see how let funny that is. Let me explain it to you again. That, no, that's that these are professional talkers, and professional talkers make terrible legislators. And you're supposed to at least chuckle, or to raise your eyebrows in a kind of ironic or wry way, or to be laughing uproariously and prop and saying you have to hang up because you want to tell everyone you know this joke. 